those last few pages she's talking about Shakespeare's sister and how she's never had the opportunity and so now her potential is kind of on our backs we have to be making the most yeah. of it and she just wants each woman and I guess even each man to just realize we are capable of greatness and it's completely within our control we simply have to seize it and it's just such a ennobling and energizing thought to hear that she is confident in us Hello, everyone. In today's recording, Callie and Brenna and I will chat about Virginia Woolf's book, A Room of One's Own. Today's quote of the day is very special to me. It's one of my absolutely favorite paragraphs ever, really. I've taken it as a kind of personal mantra, and it articulates so well the vision that I have for this course, the vision that I have for my own reading. I find it so beautiful and inspiring and profound. Hopefully I've not oversold it. This is the very last paragraph of an essay by Virginia Woolf, an essay called How Should One Read a Book? And she makes a similar argument that we've heard Azar Nafisi and Harold Bloom make, and this is what she says. Yet who reads to bring about an end, however desirable? Are there not some pursuits that we practice because they are good in themselves and some pleasures that are final? And is not this among them? I have sometimes dreamt, at least, that when the day of judgment dawns, and the great conquerors and lawyers and statesmen come to receive their rewards, their crowns, their laurels, their names carved indelibly upon imperishable marble, the Almighty will turn to Peter and will say, not without a certain envy, when he sees us coming with our books under our arms, Look, these need no reward. We have nothing to give them here. They have loved reading. And for a discussion about one of the books that I especially love reading, let's go into that chat with me and Callie and Brenna. Hi, Callie. Hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? Good. And hi, Brenna. How are you? Hi, I'm doing good. How are you guys? I want you guys to grab the mic and take this conversation where you want to take it, which is why my first question will be extremely open-ended, maybe annoyingly so. What did you think? Honestly, I don't know. I don't know how political we want to get with this because I feel like you could take it very political. But I think... go, go anywhere you want. That's what I'll say. Okay. I honestly really liked the book and I was kind of surprised that I liked it. I wouldn't consider myself super feminist. Like I consider myself to be feminist and like equality for women but like sometimes I feel like it's a uh, uh, overblown sometimes <laughs> and so this book I was kind of like worried about but honestly I really liked it a lot and like kind of just her view on the history and comparing it to where she was and then how this fiction mixed with yeah. her thoughts yeah we were kind of just along for the, the ride and whole thought train I guess it's a wonderful book for so many reasons uh I want to hear from Callie but you've you it seems like stream of consciousness, but there's clearly a structure to it. You know, it's clearly kind of right. curated. Yeah. And it is absolutely, I mean, this is a foundational text for feminism. So it's 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 in no way not pro-feminism, which is to say yeah. that it's it's pro-feminism. But it is a it is a rather demanding kind of encouragement, if that's even the word we want to use. Callie, thoughts. 
I thought this book was actually fabulous. And one of the reasons so is because I feel like there's not a lot of literature before this time where the author who's a woman is very sassy and witty and just has very frequent commentary and Mm. retorts towards all the arguments that men have. So that's what I liked the most about it was just how on the ball the narrator was about making fun of men right back for all the comments they were giving towards women. She has some really funny ones throughout the book. It's funny. That's maybe what people aren't going to expect. This book is really, really funny. Could I turn to such an example right now on the spot? I underlined a few. Do do you have, I just want to put some texture to your comment, Callie. Do you have one in mind that you thought, oh, that's hilarious? Yeah, I can find them. I remember reading a few out loud to my wife, but where are they? I think one that I was kind of amused with was the, just when she's saying like how men always feel like they have the right to like write about women while women yeah. kind of never write about men, <laughs> how they feel like they have the right to. And just, it's yeah. And there's a hilarious moment where if she surveys all of the writing that men have done about women and the creature that these men are writing about, she uses this metaphor of this like worm with wings. Remember this? She was talking about all the comments that men had made about women that were false. And she's like, I should need claws of steel and a beak of brass to even penetrate the husk. How should I ever find the grains of truth embedded in all this massive paper? Mm -hmm. And she just goes on to talk about how they say so many things that aren't true and that she is wasting her own time to try and weed through all the thoughts of men to get to actual truth. And then she says a couple pages later, wise men never say what they think about women. And, and then she says, wise men never say anything, apparently. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, she's not holding back in how she yeah. feels about how men are treating women at the time and how they respond to the acts of women. I thought it was hilarious. And she's a master of sarcastic understatement. I love this moment on page 67. At any rate, so she's talking about Jane Austen and how Jane Austen has to hide the fact that she's writing this novel. It's a slightly unseemly thing for a woman to do. And then she says, at any rate, one would not have been ashamed to have been caught in the act of writing Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) It's wonderfully understated. It's very kind of flat, dry humor, but stuff like that happens on every page. It's very humorously written. And it's also very texture full. We we hear the birds, we hear we, we see the street full of cars, we we know what people we know what they're eating for lunch. So just as a work of art, this is more than an argument, it's more than a essay of ideas. It's a work of art in its own right. You know, it's just so full of beautiful images, beautiful texture, beautiful rhythms, beautiful sentences. I yeah, I wanted to just make sure that that gets emphasized. One of the things I really liked about this was how she described things. And it reminded me almost of the romantic period. And just the way she romances about certain things was really beautiful. But I think that romanticism that existed kind of before the war, and she described all these beautiful meals that were ornate and just really decadent and rich. And then it just painted a picture of just really lovely way of living. And it was really enjoyable to read just the way she painted it and that shifts later it's such a beautiful and yeah you're right that there is the shift that she identifies about world war one there's a kind of pre-world war one life and post-world war one life we can talk about that but let me read you a few sentences at this moment as so often happens in london there was a complete lull and suspension of traffic nothing came down the street nobody passed a single leaf detached itself from the plane tree at the end of the street and in that pause and suspension fell Somehow it was like a signal falling, a signal pointing to a force in things which one had overlooked. 
We will now pause to observe a single leaf falling off of a tree. It's so lush and gorgeous. Yeah, I love it. I'm taking a civilizations class right now. So we just finished reading like all of Homer, Odyssey, Iliad and no stuff. Way. It was honestly really cool because I've, I've never touched those. And just being able to see like the Homeric similes, I think that's what it's called. Yes, yes. Just how he like, yeah, how he just totally, completely pulls away from the story and just describes these things in like full depth. That's what it made me think a lot of the time in this book is just her story isn't about Oxford. This book is about women and fiction and writing. And so it's just, just what came to mind is just her pulling away yeah. from that and to like set a stage and describe that kind of thing. Okay. So we should dive into the arguments that she's making. We've talked about the style. We've talked about the tone. We should dive into the arguments. There's one or two arguments that I give me pause that I think, I'm not sure if I'm persuaded that that's true. Mostly I'm fully on board. So your comment about Homer Maybe I'll plant the flag now, and then we'll come back to it. She claims that women authors can't really or shouldn't really be influenced by men. And I think that's one of the rare moments when I think, hmm, I wonder if that's true. But let's not go there now. Let's start with all of the things that she persuades us about. Maybe the first question would be, according to her, what have been throughout history the main impediments that women have faced in the pursuit of making art? Um, she talks about how one needs a room of their own to write, and she claims that your parents either have to be really wealthy and afford that for you, or you really just don't have it. There's not a chance for you to have a room of your own where you can write. And then another thing she claims later in the book is money. So she gets an inheritance from an aunt that dies, and that provides her with the money so that she doesn't have to work consistently to make ends meet. And that luxury is what allows her to do more educational work. And most women don't have that. And so that's what yeah. she claims is yeah. holding back women. I would put those at the top of our list. Uh, women do not inherit money, have, have not throughout history inherited money, huge obstacle. They don't have space or time, protected space and protected time, which she symbolizes as a room, a room of one's own. Breno, could we add anything to this list? I think the money thing was such a big thing that... I think it's funny that it's titled, titled a room of one's own, but like there's the two things that kind of can like compete. The money is what gives you like the resources, gives you the opportunity to go to school. Looking at Shakespeare, like the fictional Shakespeare's sister is kind of how she never had the opportunity mm -hmm. to be as popular as Shakespeare because she just never had those, had those opportunities. And I also think it was funny with, it was about the, the Mary Carmichael and how she, maybe in 500 years, she'd be a masterpiece or something like that. Yeah, there are certain, there are mental obstacles that we haven't yet addressed. There are practical, physical obstacles, space and money, freedom. But there are also certain mental obstacles that she talks about that get in the way of women producing art. And I want to get to those. But first, let's talk about her claim with Shakespeare's imaginary sister. I think this is the best part of the book this part and the, and the end, the last few pages. Do you agree? How do you react to the claim? It's quite a provocative claim. It probably will make some of us uncomfortable. She agrees, quote, it would have been impossible completely and entirely for any woman to have written the plays of Shakespeare in the age of Shakespeare. Your reactions to this claim, please. It was very shocking because I'm like expecting like this huge like Women are all the women could have done anything that a man's ever done. And so kind of to have the reality of the situation is that the possibilities weren't there for women. They couldn't have had it. They were always at home. They didn't have a room once them. Yeah, they just weren't allowed those those abilities. Yeah. Kelly? 
I was mostly disappointed. Like I finished that chapter and then I was like, that's all. Like she is a sister of Shakespeare. Her name's Judith and she's just super gifted and genius. And I was reading it and I was like, okay, what kind of works is she going to produce? Like, how is she going to enlighten us? Mm -hmm. And then you get to the end and she's, she runs away after being told that she has to marry someone and then she's impregnated and then she dies. And it's just a disappointing, but yet realistic life journey for a woman at that time. And even though we know that they're capable of greatness, we don't get to see that because of the social constraints of the time. And it's disappointing, I would say, is the biggest word to describe. Oh, it's tragic. I mean, it's beyond disappointing. I mean, it's it's this truth that a woman could not have done this in the age of Shakespeare is one of those ugly truths that we don't like to acknowledge, but yet Wolf forces us to admit is true. You know, they were deprived everything that they needed to create a work of art was withheld from them. Time, space, money, education, freedom, and approval, and public approval. You know, I love those moments when she talks about Keats and the Romantic Poets, and if, if you were a man, you weren't exactly encouraged. There's this wonderful moment when she says, the world doesn't need your poems, you know. You weren't exactly encouraged, but you weren't exactly discouraged either. But man, if you were a woman, you know, you also, on top of not having a room of your own, on top of not having money, on top of being forced into marriage, on top of not getting any inheritance, you were subjected to scorn if you announced your intentions to be an author, right? So it's public disapproval as well that you're suffering from. I would say that it lends to not just being an author, but just learning in general. We see at the beginning of the book, she tries to go into a library, right? Isn't that incredible? And they were like, no, we really don't want you here. And then she walks by a church and she's like, if it was the same way with the church, if she wanted to go into the library, she had to prove that she had a worthy cause or that she had a man with her. And she walks by a church and she's like, if it was the same way with the church, I have to prove my baptism or prove that I yeah. was a member, which makes no sense because the complete, the p- purpose of a library in a church is for self-improvement, right? To lighten oneself in a library intellectually and you enlighten yourself spiritually in a church it's not for the perfect people or the perfect learner Mm. so it's just really ironic that they wouldn't allow her in it's triply ironic virginia wolf one of the most important english authors of the century isn't allowed into the library without a male companion this is just absurd it's just it's so shocking and so hard to believe I mean, yes, we live in a country now that isn't perfect, but man, we have it good. When I say we, I guess I really mean you. You know what I mean? Because we privileged men have always been allowed in libraries, but I think there's something remarkably important about needing to remember how much progress has been made since then. Brenna, thoughts? I agree. Just the fact that we are so lucky these days, both both sexes, but yeah, especially us that we've advanced so much because of the opportunities that have been given to us. I don't know if we want to dive into the last paragraph already, but... I want you to go wherever you want to go. Okay. Um, just because I kind of realized those last two pages, or last few pages, and she's talking about uh, Shakespeare's sister and how she's never had the opportunity. And so now her potential is kind of on our backs. We have to be making the most yeah. of it. And it just kind of made me think just in general, the people that have passed on our lives and it made me think of my grandpa because a few years ago he died from pancreatic cancer. And yeah, he was an amazing man. And so it was, it was sad to see him go, but 
one of the things that he said right before he died is that once I get out of this hospital, I want to go love more and I want to learn more. And so because of that, I think mm. I just think of all the lost potential that everyone before us has had, has ever had. And like um, the opportunity that we have to kind of just live for them kind of thing, you know? I, yeah, I can tying in what she's been talking about with a little quote from the end. She says, she talks about drawing her life from the lives of the unknown who were her forerunners. And as I read that, I'm thinking about not just from a feminist point of view, but just human equality, like how privileged we are. And as I read the book, I couldn't help but think of all the people who have paved the way for us to be as free as we are, right? Like our founding fathers, they brought us to a country that we could, you know, worship and would have that freedom. And then also I thought about reading Lolita in Tehran, the book at the beginning of the semester, like the women who paved the way despite the social constructs of the time legally to read. There's just so many people that have contributed to our ability and our privilege. And just reading the, finishing the book, I felt very blessed, but I think we can all recognize how we are drawing our lives from the lives of our forerunners who are unknown to us. Yeah. And I think Wolf teaches us exactly the attitude we need to have because of how privileged and lucky we are. Let me start reading a few of these sentences, but then I will put you two on the spot and get you to do some reading. Is that okay? Because I want Wolf's <laughs> language to be heard, but I'll start the ball rolling. This is what she says. Young women... So I'm now on page 112. Young women, I would say, and please attend, for the peroration is beginning. (laughs) She's announcing. The climax of my speech is now starting. You are, in my opinion, disgracefully ignorant. I'll pause there for a quick reaction shot from both of you. It reminds me of my young women leaders growing up, where they would just kind of tell us that we didn't really know what we were doing. And it was humorous because it was true, right? We have a lot of growth to do. I mean, yeah, it's pretty much the same. This whole book, she's talking about the possibilities that women have never been offered. And so it almost seems like she just completely ruined her her whole argument about women in fiction. But I think deep down, it's more like you're young. You don't know what you're doing. You don't realize. I don't know. There's there's a lot to it. (laughs) You have to. I think it's a call to potential. I think people like being told that they could do better, they could do more, because it's a recognition that, oh, I'm I'm stronger than I think I am. I could do better. I could know more. So it's this weird, strange kind of encouragement. Then she, the rest of that paragraph, she talks about how a person might object to that statement and say, well, for hundreds of years, women have born and bred and washed and taught and have been betrothed at the age of six or seven, you know, and have not had any money. And then she says, there is truth in what you say. I will not deny it. Can I have one of you read to the end of that paragraph? Okay, I can read that if you want. Thank you. So, yeah, there's truth in what you say. I will not deny it. But at the same time, may I remind you that there have been at least two colleges for women in existence in England since the year 1866. That after the year 1880, a married woman was allowed by law to possess her own property. And that in 1919, which is a whole nine years ago, she was given a vote. May I also remind you that most of the professions have been open to you for close on 10 years now. When you reflect upon these immense privileges and the length of time during which they have been enjoyed, and the fact that there must be at this moment some 2,000 women capable of earning over 500 a year in one way or another, you will agree that the excuse of lack of opportunity, training, 
Encouragement, leisure, and money no longer holds good. Moreover, the economists are telling us that Mrs. Satan has had too many children. You must, of course, go on bearing children, but so they say in twos and threes, not in tens and twos. Isn't this remarkable? I gasped. I mean, I've, re- I've read this book several times, but I was on the couch yesterday gasping, and my wife even said, are you okay? And I just said, "This." she's never read this book, my wife. It's one of those books I say, you should really read this. And she says, I know, I know, I know. It's just on her list. I, I was just swooning. I was in an audible swoon. And she said, are you okay? I was like, this book is so good. I'm shocked at this paragraph. She says, it's been 10 years since most of the professions have been open to women. She acts as if 10 years is all the time in the world, all the time that women need to begin to attempt this great, important, noble enterprise of giving voice to Shakespeare's sister. 10 years, it's like the blink of an eye. How do you react to this, to her to her time frames here? It is the 10 years, which is kind of short, but the fact that she's kind of just calling out women as a whole, like, hey, you've had your time to be like idle, not be doing anything, but now is your time to shine. And now is your time, I think, for future generations as well to make those opportunities more readily available. I think it's just kind of calling them out. <laughs> Callie, thoughts? I like this paragraph, but I don't like this paragraph. Yeah. And <laughs> I like it that she's calling women out. We should all be more like Virginia Woolf and get on with our lives and make things happen. But- well, this is very interesting. I think she's celebrating the fact that women can choose to have as many kids as they want to. You know, this is something that certain social uh, changes, certain, you know, and institutional changes, and not, not to mention just the invention of birth control, which I guess hasn't happened yet when she's writing this. That women have more power to dictate how many kids they want to have. So I'm not consigned to this unless you want it. Yeah. I'm quite provoked in a wonderful way too by this by this paragraph. Ten years, is that really enough time to start expecting that Shakespeare's sister be given total voice? Maybe it's not. But then on the other hand, I'm totally in love with this encouragement, this kind of like get on with it attitude, you know? What excuses do we have to keep this gendered, don't we? We just have to. What excuses do women have? not to attempt, and I will say this word attempt, because there's a difference between attempting and actually accomplishing. She makes it clear that the the creation of a masterpiece is difficult for men and women. It's almost impossible to create a masterpiece, even if you're a man. Everything is against it. But what excuses do we have not to try? Do we have any? Do you have any? I would not say there are legitimate excuses but i can't say that i don't have excuses reading this is inspiring like i want to be more like her and just say what am i waiting for to start my life right yeah brenna yeah i think so often i'm obviously guilty of it is just falling into that victim mentality i still don't have everything that that guy has and so like i don't have the same opportunity as he is so he can create something but i'll just opposite it back because it's not my he didn't offer that to me kind of thing But I guess, honestly, deep down, it's just, we don't want to do it. It's too much work. It's too much, I don't know, maybe like the fear of rejection, fear of like that kind of thing. Fear of failure, for sure. I mean, um, it's hard to write a masterpiece. You know, most men who try don't succeed. Most men who try don't succeed. So for her to say, okay, women, it's now your time to try, that's a scary exhortation. Most young women hearing that are going to, I think, react as you two are reacting and think, oh, geez, this is scary. What if I fail? Well, that's probably highly likely. But 
how else is Shakespeare's sister going to get a voice? I mean, Callie, do you want to read? You can say no if you don't want to read. I would I'd love to. Can you please read? This is a long kind of chunk. Do you want to read the last paragraph? It's the paragraph that starts, I told you, and then just go to the end. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I told you in the course of this paper that Shakespeare had a sister, but do not look for her in Sir Sidney Lee's life of the poet. She died young. Alas, she never wrote a word. She lies buried in the omnibus now stop opposite the elephant and castle. Now my belief is that this poet who never wrote a word and was buried at the crossroads still lives. She lives in you and in me and in many other women who are not here tonight, for they are washing up the dishes and putting the children to bed. But she lives. For great poets do not die. They are the continuing presences. They only need the opportunity to walk among us in the flesh. This opportunity, as I think, it is now coming within your power to give her. For my belief is that if we live another century or so, I am talking of the common life, which is the real life and not of the separate little separate lives, which we live as individuals and have 500 a year, each of us and rooms of our own. If we have the lacks of habit of freedom and the courage to write exactly what we think, if we escape a little from the common sitting room and see human beings, not always in their relation to each other, but in relation to reality and the sky too, and the trees or whatever it is, whatever it may be in themselves, if we look past Milton's bogey, for no human being should shut out the view, if we face the fact, for it is a fact, that there is no arm to cling to, but we go alone and in our relation to the world of reality, and not only to the world of men and women, then the opportunity will come, and the dead poet who was Shakespeare's sister will put on the body which she has often laid down, drawing her life from the lives of the unknown who were her forerunners. As her brother did before her, she will be born. As for her coming without that preparation, without that effort on our part, without that determination, that when she is born again, she shall find it possible to live and write her poetry that we cannot expect, for it would be impossible. But I maintain that she would come if we worked for her, and that so to work, even in poverty and obscurity, it is worthwhile. Is it repetitive of me to ask you for your reactions to this? Have we already answered that question? <laughs> I just think it's an, it's inspiring and encouraging and optimistic about the future. It doesn't feel cynical or anything. It's just, it feels full of hope to me. That's a great, that that is new. We haven't said that yet. How optimistic it is, how uncynical it is. How does she react to being blocked out of the library? She could have become so angry and so bitter and so resentful, but instead she's so full of hope. We can still do this. We can give voice to these people who had no voice. Brenna, how do you react? In the whole thing, she's talking about women in fiction, but obviously I think the deeper meaning behind the fiction and all that is just life, that they weren't yes. able to live to the full potential. It's just funny that this paragraph, she says, she died young, alas, she never wrote a word. And then a few lines down, she says, but she lives for great poets do not die. Even though she she never wrote poetry, she never wrote, I think the poetry is life, just kind of thing. She never had the full life that men had. She never got to live up to the potential. Everyone has like their poet, their poem that they never got to write kind of thing. It this transcends the specific topic of the book, which is women in fiction. That's the kind of invitation she was given by the society to lecture about. This teaches me how to live, how to live in any 
profession or society or family, how to be a person, how to live a full life. We can do that. And I say we, I mean, I, I am a man, but I read this and I have two reactions. The first is personal. I, I read this and I feel inspired to do better, to aim higher, to work harder. There are excuses that I know I am hiding behind. There, there are things, there are poems. I mean, I, I try to write poems. There are poems, but then there are just ways of behaving that I know I am capable of if I tried harder. And I want to put those into the world. I hope women listen to her and take her advice because I greedily want those works by Shakespeare's sister. I, for myself, am sad I can't read them. That makes me mad and sad that they don't exist. I want them to exist. So I hope young women listening to this and reading this book take this challenge and give me those poems. <laughs> give me those poems. That's what I'm saying. Um, Callie, you talk about how, yeah, there's this risk. Let, let's pivot here. Very many kinds of feminism, very many different ways of being a feminist. And some strands of feminism get criticized for because they are interpreted to be suggesting that women should be the same as men and that they should live lives that are identical to the lives that men live. I don't think Wolf, she says, yeah, we, we can have money and jobs and become poets. But I think that she is the kind of feminist that says very loudly and clearly that men and women are different and that these differences should be preserved and celebrated. Do we have any thoughts about what she says are the differences between men and women and why these differences are good and should be preserved? Callie, go. I'm so ready for this. Um, I love that she is a feminist, but she's not in any way degrading men, except for the completely ignorant things that they do. But that's not what I'm talking about. She... Yeah is realistic in understanding the differences and the benefits of both genders. But I like that her approach to feminism is women, you can be better than you are now. That's what this is about, is you achieving your full potential. And she says on page 110, let's see, um, I should implore you to remember your responsibilities, to be higher, more spiritual. I should remind you that how about how much depends on you and what an influence you can exert upon the future. And she yeah. keeps on going, but she just... Do not dream of influencing other people. I would say, think of things in themselves. And she just wants each woman, and I guess even each man, to just realize, like, we are capable of greatness. And it's completely within our control. We simply have to seize it. And it's just such an ennobling and um, energizing thought to hear that she is confident in us. I love that. If she was capable of remaining optimistic and confident while not being allowed to enter the library, we have no excuse to not be optimistic and confident. You know what I mean? I don't know. Brenna, any thoughts about the necessary distinctions that she makes between men and women? I mean, Kelly, you went over it perfectly, but kind of in, I think, in our religion, at least something that I learned a lot. I just remember like an EFI lesson that we had is that like, Men and women are like your left hand and like your right hand. They'll never be like the same thing. You can never make it so that they're the same. It's like you worked, you use them to work together and they're both so important. And I think she, she makes a great argument for that in this, that not, they can't be equal. And like, I hate to say this because it's out of in the wrong context kind of thing, but like separate but equal kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. It's like, we're they're not separate. identical. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So they shouldn't be treated thus. 
This is the obvious implication of her longing and her lament that Shakespeare's sister didn't get to write. If there was no difference between Shakespeare and his sister, we wouldn't miss the works of Shakespeare's sister. We have Shakespeare's works, and if men and women are the same, why do we need why do we need plays written by a woman? Well, because women are different. That's why, because they're different. However, can we spend 60 seconds can I? Maybe you don't disagree with her. Can I spend 60 seconds disagreeing with one thing she says? Okay, go to page 76. This is in a paragraph that begins, but whatever effect discouragement and criticism had upon their writing. If you go down in that paragraph, she says, she says, for we think back through our mothers if we are women. It is useless to go to the great men writers for help, however much one may go to them for pleasure. Lamb, Brown, Thackeray, Newman, Stern, Dickens, De Quincey, whoever it may be, never helped a woman yet, though she may have learned a few tricks of them and adapted them to her use. This is maybe the the, the one and maybe one and a half. I, I I disagree with her one and a half times. This is the one. No, this can't be true. That women cannot learn how to write from male authors. How do you react to this uh, suggestion? I agree with you, and that I think she is not giving men enough credit because. You know, we see great works from men, um, not even just literary ones. We think of like all the beautiful musicians like Mozart and Chopin and all men who have created great things. Like there is essential beauty that comes from both men and women. And I think she does discredit men a little bit in this. Instance. But also women discredits women, too. For The suggestion here is that women wouldn't know how to learn from Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And I just want to think I just want to say. You know, Virginia Woolf has clearly been influenced by Shakespeare, Dostoevsky, Thackeray, you know, a whole bunch of male authors. I think this can't be true. Brenna, what are your thoughts? I think it is severe how she says it. I can almost understand what she's coming about. Maybe that like women are two women and men are two different things. And so it's like hard to draw like inspiration from them. But I that just kind of sounds like it's dumb. Obviously, yeah, you learn so much from everyone in the past, male or female. Could be true in some situations or in some ways. There are certain authors right. who I really love who are men. And my, my, I would call my wife a kind of, even though she hasn't read this book, I would call her a kind of Virginia Woolf-esque feminist. Yeah. So she doesn't really pay much attention to the gender of the person that she's reading. But there, there, there have been certain authors that I've said, oh, you've got to read this book. And once or twice, she's returned the book to me half read and said, no, it's just too masculine. It's just, I just, it's not about me. I don't, you know. I think that's interesting. So there might be marginal cases in which, yeah, these differences are heightened in a way that makes transfer from one gender to the other slightly more difficult. Okay, I want to also make sure that we cover this question. There are physical impediments. There there have been physical impediments in the way of women making art, but there have also been mental ones. She talks about certain mental impediments. Can we address some of these and talk about why, according to Virginia Woolf, they get in the way of women making art and what she suggests we do about these mental and emotional impediments? Uh, I would say that one is that just the expectation of society that you're not going to create anything. And it's just definitely a mental battle when everyone thinks you're not capable of something. There's no validation in that. So I think that's definitely a big mental one. Absolutely. Does she say explicitly how to overcome this? Or can we infer ways in which people can overcome this through how Virginia Woolf herself behaves and acts? What would we say? 
Um, the world, the world does not need your poems. And what should young women? How should young women react when the world tells them we do not need your poems? I, she doesn't. I don't think she says anywhere exactly how to combat this. She just basically tells everyone to not worry about what society is telling you. Like lots of men are kind of crazy anyway. She says they're right. saying things that aren't true. So don't disregard yourself by listening to someone else. It's a labor. This is the very, maybe the very last sentence is the closest she gets to making this explicit. It's a labor that is worthwhile, even in poverty and obscurity. Yeah. I think just it's, it's the whole idea of trying maybe this, like she mentioned how, like maybe this author would be amazing and get so much popularity in like 500 years. Maybe she'd be a good writer then. And it's just kind of like, obviously we don't have 500 years, but to just continue trying. And like, I think even just trying gives, gives Shakespeare's sister a voice. Yeah, just an effort is like really all that we can give at sometimes. Absolutely. You have to just try. I mean, everything is against you. If you're a man, everything is against you. And if you're a woman, everything and then a little bit extra is against you, <laughs> you know? But you still have to try. Virginia Woolf didn't let this ugly fact of not being allowed in the library give her an excuse to not try. How do you react to this? Is in chapter four. She starts quoting poems by women. And she says, hmm, this is failing. This is not good. And she says things like this. On the contrary, this passage of poetry is harassed and distracted with hates and grievances. Yeah. So this is another mental or emotional obstacle that women who have every right to be resentful and bitter at how they've been treated, she says they have to fight against letting these emotions enter their work. I mean, this is a quote. It is fatal for anyone who writes to think of their sex. I, it took me a long time to like think about that because she she idolizes Jane Austen in this. I feel like she, she does. just loves yeah everything that she does. The whole Pride and Prejudice and like hiding the manuscript. She just she adores her. But then I feel like she's so harsh on like the Bronte sisters <laughs> and how she's like they're letting their emotions get ahead of themselves and. I don't know if she says this exactly, almost like ruin the books, her desire to be something else to do, to be somewhere else. She just focus, focuses on that so much. The idea to like get out of ourselves. And so it's not necessarily, at least I'm taking it, is that not necessarily to stop being your sex and stop thinking of like your sex thinks, but rather kind of take yourself away from that and kind of take yourself away from emotions or from feelings that are so bias to you kind of thing I don't yeah, know. <laughs> Ka Ka I, no i think I, I'm, we're on the same wavelength what does callie think i don't like her argument here and it's mostly for the reason that i think by disregarding emotion we just brush over a huge amount of art by not acknowledging our sex that degrades us in a way because we have mm. blessings that come from each sex. And when we disregard those, we're missing out on something. Interesting. It, it, it does sound slightly contradictory, right? Women have to learn from women how to write about women, but, and yet they shouldn't think about their sex. There could be a slight contradiction there. Yeah. I just didn't see a lot of real logic in her argument, I wouldn't but maybe I need to study it more. Well, no, I, I don't think, I mean, She's certainly not suggesting, and you're not suggesting this, that she is suggesting, but she's not suggesting that we have to write without emotion. But there are certain emotions, she names them, she calls them 
yeah, hates, grievances, fear, hatred. So this is on the bottom of 58. But one would also expect to find that her mind was disturbed by alien emotions like fear and hatred, right? So, and that her and that her poems showed traces of that disturbance. So if creating a masterpiece is already almost impossible, I think Wolf's argument is, why would you make it even harder on yourself by letting your concentration be distracted by hates and grievances? And the Brontes, she does take to task. I think she likes the Brontes. She doesn't totally dislike them, but they're not as good as Austin for her because the Brontes, according to Wolf, seem every once in a while to crack under the strain of these quote-unquote hates and grievances, whereas Austin somehow has managed to, I mean, Austin is, is an extremely emotional writer. I mean, those, po- those, those novels are emotional, for sure, but she has seemed to kind of achieve a stoic resilience. She won't let any tinge, this is Wolf's argument, Austin won't let any tinge of bitterness or resentment or hate or grievance enter her novels. Is this something that is, is she, is Wolf asking too much? Is this possible to achieve this kind of stoic Zen-like Callie? I guess I'm just confused by the whole argument because when you read Jane Austen, it's a little angsty and it's emotional and it's talking about women and their struggles and it's in no no way disregarding their sex, right? It's completely about their sex, yet she admires her so much. So I guess I'm just confused by this whole argument because it seems contradictory to herself. And if you read Jane Austen, what you notice is that over and over again, the heroines, the female protagonists, always marry men who are, first of all, they're always proposed to by men who are idiots. (laughs) And then they're always marrying men who aren't idiots, but also aren't as interesting. You know, I mean, what's his name? Darcy isn't as interesting as Elizabeth Bennet. He's almost Mm -hmm. as interesting, but not quite. Right. It's just, there's some (laughs) cognitive dissonance in her argument and I just am confused. That's interesting. Brenna, thoughts? I think I I see where you're coming from now. I think she's using her emotions to kind of, her emotions and her experiences to kind of create these novels. Are you talking about Austen? Sorry, Jane Austen. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, she's using those emotions, but I think also she's not letting those emotions her emotions at the present in her life kind of steer her. Like, I guess it's hard to explain, but I feel like I look at like Jane Austen's life and I, I barely know that much, but it wasn't like all rainbows and sunshine. And Indeed. Yeah. She wasn't like writing about her life, but I think, I think what she's, what um, Wolf is trying to get in this is that she didn't let the sorrows in her life kind of bias her book, I guess. Just because how like the Brontes with like Wuthering Heights, I guess it will just their angst and their desire for more kind of made the writing style, I guess, change. I don't know. <laughs> and and Wolf herself, I know we have to wrap up now, but Wolf herself actually admits that this what makes a great work of art great isn't easy to quantify. She calls it like reality. When you re- when you read a great novel, you're presented with reality, and you just know it when you see it. So it's not quite easy to say this novel fails in this particular way and this novel doesn't. Yeah, we talk around it, we talk about it, but Brenna, you're right to not quite know exactly how to phrase it. Do either of you want to say something about this reading that you haven't yet been able to before we close down? I would just say to whoever is going to read it, just take the time to notice her arguments and the beauty within them. I think there's just a lot of value in sitting down and understanding all of her 
points because they are really beautiful and inspiring and mm. we can take a lot from them. We can grow after reading this book for sure, which I guess is what makes it a masterpiece, right? Mm. It's inspiring. Love that. Just one thing it is to, I think, kind of see the things that she says and the way she says them, relate them to us, but also be able to recognize them in other places in literature, not just literature, I guess, but just mm. like the the ideas and the arguments that she makes in here are, I think, as you said, what makes a, a masterpiece a masterpiece is just that they're applicable to all and they can help us grow and become better. Why have I accidentally given myself the last word here? Exactly what you two have said. That's my last word. Exactly what you two have said. And I'll just add that as a man, I find this book to be about me. You know what I mean? It, it teaches me how to how to not hide behind certain excuses. It teaches me that I should aim higher, try better, and that it's my job to do great things in the world. To, it's my job to attempt to do great things in the world. That's my job. I think all, Judith. All of our jobs. I think Judith would thank you for that. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> And I hope that you and Brenna and every young woman listening will try to give Judith life in your own lives. Now, you don't have to become a poet, but live a life that Judith couldn't live. You know, live a life that Jud Judith couldn't live. Thank you both for a great chat. You too. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Today's poem of the day isn't really a poem. It's a small little excerpt from Virginia Woolf's novel To the Lighthouse, which does have many quote-unquote poetic qualities to it. But I wanted to read this because it's a personal favorite of mine, and I think it harkens to a lot of the themes that we've addressed so far in this course. One of the characters in this novel thinks this. What is the meaning of life? That was all a simple question, one that tended to close in on one with years. The great revelation had never come. The great revelation perhaps never did come. Instead, there were little daily miracles, illuminations, matches struck unexpectedly in the dark. That's it for now. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Soon I'll release a recording about Albert Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus and the first half of his novel, The Plague. In the meantime, keep reading. Keep looking for those little illuminations, those matches struck in the dark. And keep enjoying these readings. <laughs> <laughs>